0: G'day everyone, welcome to the Roadless Travel Podcast. Nikki Shea back in the seat with you for this week's edition of The Road, and we are indeed out on the road. A big thanks to those of you who've interacted with us. We really appreciate your support. And don't forget you can drop us a SMS on 42 752 8467 and that email fatcat at iinet.net.au And you can check out all the previous episodes and upcoming events on our website, which is Fatcat Media. .com.au. I was just about to sneeze and to apologise. And if you're listening through, which you can, you can listen to us via Apple, uh, Spotify, and also iHeartRadio, as well as Google Podcast and the SoundCloud app as well. This week on The Road Less Travelled, we thought that we'd actually come to you from the road. And inside the caravan at the moment, as the sun goes down, the birds are chirping up in the trees. We're out on the hunt for gold. And the discovery of gold on Australian soil arguably hastened our development and population growth by as much as half a century and is still considered an export uh, export earner. Luckily for the travellers, such as us, gold can still be found through vast areas of Australia and is still quite accessible in small quantities to the well-prepared enthusiast. And a lot of people have asked me, is there still gold and can you get it? How hard is it? Well, the media often reports on the discovery of very large nuggets. Uh, Last year, for example, a Victorian pensioner unearthed a 2 kilogram nugget just outside of Bendigo. Worth up to $160,000, he named his find. You wouldn't believe it. A girl walking her dog near Bendigo in Victoria recently found a nugget worth thirty thousand dollars and another one point four kilogram that's one point four kilogram chunk was unearthed over in Kelgoolean WA. Going back a few years, the massive 24.6 kilo Hand of Faith nugget was found in Kingover in 1980. That's 24.5 kilos. The most famous gold chunk of of them all, the welcome stranger, first saw the light of day at Molligal in Victoria in 1869 and weighed 65.3 kilos. I'll read that again to you, 65.3 kilograms. Such finds are very unlikely given the large number of people who are now looking but panning for alluvial gold and getting out after smaller nuggets is pretty much a satisfying pastime. It combines elements of bush travel, exercise, and time outdoors. And if you throw in the draw card of some historic locations and towns, it's certainly well worth the effort. Now, how do you get involved? Well, there are gold fossing. Foster King Clubs uh, for some people are the best place to hook up with true enthusiasts. They've got information nights and regular outings and experienced members are always happy to help with the new chums. I spoke to Paul, who's the president of Victoria's Seekers Club, which has over 200 members, mainly retirees, and asked him the highlight of the benefits in joining a club such as them. And he said, often I say to people that we're not only a prospecting club, but also a caravanning, camping club, a four-wheel drive club, and a social club. Our club camps in the Golden Triangle of Victoria for about five days most months. It's a very social, with a sundowners on most evenings, yarns around the campfire, and regular function and games and competitions. Joining a club is also a great is also great because you're mixing with the like-minded people who are helping you get started. Now, gold detecting is much safer as part of a group rather than doing it alone. There are hazards in the gold fields, and most clubs will have safety guidelines, for example, carrying a two-way radio, water, GPS, and detecting with someone else. Now, it might sound a little strange, but if you're only getting to prospecting to find the next big gold nugget, you probably won't last too long. If you are after a long-term hobby, and like the bush, camping and socialising with sort of like-minded people, join a club. Gold prospecting clubs in various areas can be found with a quick internet or Google search. Most also nowadays have Facebook pages, and these can be a great way of deciding whether or not a club is suitable for you before approaching them. And as I said earlier, where to find gold? Well, there are, of course, fossicking areas aimed at tourists, some of which even plant gold for you to find. These are good places to learn the ropes, as many of you will have panning experts available to show you the best techniques. For example, Sovereign Hill at Ballarat is one example and some historic gold towns also hold special days and festivals of which some activities are staged as one-off events. There are also a number of recognised gold-bearing areas in Australia. The biggest of these are Victoria's Golden Triangle, West Australia's Goldfields region, Central Queensland and the Bathurst area west of Sydney. South Australia and the Northern Territory have important commercial operations and some good fossicking prospects too. Only pretty much the most experienced prospectors go looking for new gold areas, usually in very remote areas. In the past, uh, desperate and sort of intrepid prospectors would go far ahead in settled areas, watching for the telltale signs such as greenstone and quartz, panning every creek they came to, looking for the exciting yellow smear at the base of the dish. And as we said on our previous episode, Lasseter's Lost Reef, for example, has passed now into Australian folklore. Now, life is not quite that hard for the casual prospector these days. There's quite clearly defined gold-bearing areas that declare their value well into the travelling gold hunter. The action is generally centred along certain rivers, and good finds can still occur as erosion and weathering, like the weathering constantly exposes new materials to the surface. Now, there's a variety of techniques. It's uh, three basic forms Let me just rewind. Gold is found in three basic forms, which is reef gold, which is veins in rocks, alluvial gold and nuggets. Now, both alluvial gold and nuggets uh, were originally formed from the weathered reefs. They shed from it. Reef gold is now generally the domain of the real serious mining operations delving from between uh, 10 to 1,000 metres below the surface. They follow the gold vein or the leader. Much of the gold mined professionally these days is so small it's not even visible to the naked eye. Alluvial and nugget gold is of most interest to the casual prospector. And we'll go through them. What is alluvial gold? It's the cheapest and easiest target for prospectors and it's your best chance at finding some colour. All you really need is a shovel, a plastic or an iron gold pan, a bucket and some go- and a gold bearing creek. And you should find your first specks of gold without too much effort. The secret with alluvial gold is to remember that gold is the heaviest element. It will always sink to the lowest point and in water, slowly works its way to the bottom of the lighter gravels. In strong flows... It will be dragged along with other part well it will be dragged along like other particles, but certain riverbed formation work as traps concentrating the gold particles. So look for potholes or just upstream of rock bars. Use your shovel or even a yabby pump to lift the deepest gravel from these areas into your bucket. Alternative to Alternatively, in an old gold mining area, look for the piles of spoil or the mullet heaps on the banks. This is gravel that's already been extracted by others and it's often worth panning because there's still be flakes of gold that were missed. As for the process of panning itself, the process in the, well, it was described in um, the Melbourne Argus newspaper in 1894 and it's these instructions are awesome, they still apply today. All the material you've gathered you put into your bucket and when it's full you take it out and you tin dish to the bank of the creek for washing or panning out. Into the dish you put half your bucket of stuff and place it on the bank so the water can wash into it. Now with both hands, the fingers open, commence to churn the stuff vigorously, breaking up the large lumps of clay and throwing out the stones as they come to the surface. Let plenty of water into the dish but do not allow any of the material to escape out of it. After churning it for a few minutes, take the dish by the sides and give it a circular swirling motion, still letting the water into it. Churn again with your hands, throwing out the smaller stones. Repeat these processes until you've got down to about a handful of the stuff. Keep this at one end and lap it about in a pint of water. Make this gentle rotate around the dish and it will gradually wash away the clay, leaves the black sand exposed in which the gold, if any, will be seen. Don't be disheartened if you should not come across any nugget the first time. Think yourself lucky you get good colour and that's half a dozen specs. So that's from the Argus newspaper in the 1890s. Another way of finding is metal detectors. It's something I've just got into recently. Whole books have been written on this topic, but the basic idea is that you outfit yourself with a metal detector, learn how to use it, locate an area where the gold is likely to be found, get permission and the relevant permits if necessary and start looking. Most detectorists carry a small spade or a pick. Be prepared for plenty of false alarms. Now, there are different types of detectors, and these will penetrate deeper than others, but the rule of thumb is that the bigger the nugget, the greater the depth at which the detector will locate it. Only a very large lump of gold will trigger an alert at more than 30 centimetres under the surface with most type of detectors. What kind of, when it gets to an an entry letter, Entry-level detector, um, a company called Minelab manufactures a large range of metal detectors. I have a Minelab, and the most popular makers of of gold detectors too. Their products include the the top-of-the-range gold detector, which is a GPZ-7000, which will set you back close to $10,000. For less than half this you can buy a S- SDC2300 which is very simple to use and very good on small gold. The GPX4000, 4500 4, or 5000 are three very good detectors with more settings and a range of coils for different conditions. Now while it can take years to become truly proficient with a detector, early success can happen. Um, for example, I know someone that bought a mine lab um, in two thousand and four, and on their very first detecting trip, uh, they were returning to the car after detecting a lower fence line and every now and then they'd get too close to the wire fence the detector would howl so on one one occasion, the guy actually made a larger, the detector made a larger noise over a chunk of quartz which was poking out the ground. He dug the quartz out, kicked it to the side, and when he put the coil back over the hole, there was no sound it wasn 't the fence which made the detector sound off. He picked up the quartz rock. Which, which is a bit larger than a softball, and had a close inspection, and there was gold running right through it. Um, he took it to the gold shop in Ballarat, and the owner did some tests on it, and he had about 11 ounces of gold. Um, in today's money, it would have been about $20,000 worth. So uh, it can happen. Permits and requirements. Most states require that you purchase a miner's right before you can prospect anywhere other than a special fossicking reserve. Yes, that's pretty much the same piece of paper that sparked the Eureka Stockade too. In general, this permit will allow you to search for gold on vacant crown land, a pastoral lease that is not covered by a granted mining tenement with permission from the leaseholder, and a mining tenement providing you have permission from the tenement holder. If you don't fulfil these requirements, you may not have any right to possess the gold you find. Imagine if that happened with a a once-in-a-lifetime nugget. Once again, clubs are a great source of information on the legal requirements in your state. So what are your chances? Well, gold was once one of the very few ways for a poor individual to become rich or at least attain a higher standard of living. In the mid-19th century, up to a million people were actively prospecting for gold in Australia. In 1930, on the cusp of the Great Depression, the New South Wales Mines Department was instructing up to 1,000 desperate people in prospecting skills and sending them off to the outback with a small subsidy. So we all know that the big gold mining corporations are still making heaps of money from huge open-cut or shaft mines. But is there anything out there apart from the very rare huge nugget? Well, gold is getting harder to find, that's true. But enough good nuggets are still being found to give us hope. Metal detectors are still also improving every time. So with the right equipment, a bit of hard work and a positive attitude, small subgram nuggets are often found by um, other prospectors. However, I would emphasize that most members of clubs are not prospecting for financial rewards. In other words, it's not about the money, but it's all about, for me personally, it's about getting outdoors, doing something interesting, and there has to be more precious that has to be, in my opinion, more precious than gold. It's um, a great hobby. Um, as I said, um, you can start off with just a gold pan and go out and pan in a river, or you can hook yourself up with uh, metal detectors. And there are shops, uh, especially, especially gold mining shops. Um, if there's Reed's Prospecting over in WA, there's the Mine Lab stores here in, in Victoria. So check your um, just jump on Google for the locust prospecting or um, mining supply store in your area. go down and have a chat. They love to have a chat as well and um get involved in it, it's a great hobby, lots of fun, if you find something, uh, my father actually likens it to fishing, Um, it's all about going out there and having fun, if you catch a fish, all well and good, if you go out there and you get some gold, all well and good, but it's all about being outside, enjoying this fantastic country, and that's what I intend to do after this podcast, is to jump back out on the the lab Gold Detector, I've got a gold monster, and uh, head out there and see what I can find. We'll take a quick break and be back with more of the Road Less Travelled podcast after this. The Road Less Travelled podcast is a proudly Australian fiercely independent podcast hosted and produced by me, Nikki Shea, for Fat Cat Media. We receive no corporate payments, which means we rely on self-sufficient financial support. If you can and are able to, we would love you to support us via Patreon. Listen to the Road Less Travel podcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the podcast. I thought it's important too to have a bit of a chat about the relationship uh, to primary source of gold and the difference between alluvial gold and e-luvial gold, alluvial L U V I E L and alluvial, E-L-U-V-I-E-L. Alluvial gold is the fine gold and small nuggets, and they can be transported many kilometres from the source of the gold itself. They can be ancient alluvial gold deposits in ground lifted high above the current stream levels. The alluvial gold are larger nuggets, and they may be closer to the primary gold source. So, how is the type of gold transported? For alluvial, it's moved by water through gullies, streams, creeks, and rivers. Alluvial is freed up by the—it's freed up rather from the gold source by erosion, uh, things like weathering, and moved by gravity downslope. It can be very close to the gold source if the source has not been dispersed. So, the gold characteristics of alluvial, or alluvial rather, a double L. Rounded edges, small nuggets, flakes or gold dust, they have larger nuggets closer to the source in upper reaches of a river or a creek, the finer gold further from the source or in lower reaches of the river. They have the largest nuggets deposited in coarse sediment and finer gold in sandy parts of the sediment and they can occur with heavy minerals such as magnetite. The alluvial is angular irregular shaped nuggets, generally the gold nuggets are larger near the source and smaller further down the slope and often specimen gold or species uh, is still found. The specimen gold still has the host rock attached. So the high specific gravity, the SG of gold, mean, means that it's transported at the base of currents and will be deposited by changes in current. So places to prospect for alluvial gold in streams or riverbeds are where you should be doing. And the key of that is to imagine that the stream is in full flood, then look anywhere where there is a change in the velocity or the direction of the water. So find the direction of flow, then prospect on and around the inside bend of the stream or riverbank. Gold will travel in the line of least resistance, so look downstream to the next sharp inside bend and prospect in a straight line to that bend. Now, along that line, look at the stream bed. Is there obstruction such as hard rock dikes across the flow or boulders? If so, look around those areas. If there are fissures, holes or natural traps in the stream, scrape out all the material in those natural traps. Check the overburden in all these stream traps right down to bedrock, then scrape out the fissures and holes in the bedrock. Even if the stream bedrock is bare granite or other sort of igneous rock, check it for fissures. Look for holes, even those filled with cemented rubble, and check these thoroughly down to the bedrock. The coarse sediment and gravel deposits could hold larger gold nuggets, even if the deposit is not on the bedrock, it still can be contained in smaller nuggets. And just remember that not all deposits are in current streams. Try to identify where the streams flowed in the past and prospect there using these rules. Also remember too, folks, that the ancient river valleys and stream beds could have been covered by volcanic flows, or they've even been uplifted by earth movement and may be found in the tops or the sides of hills. Detect on the edge and the banks of salt lakes, where streams flow into the lake from gold mining areas too. The cause of gold deposits are kind of caused by a change in the velocity or direction of water flow, such as inside bends in the river, uh, the large boulders in the water flow, the water slows down as it flows into a pool, estuary or lake, and fishes, holes or natural traps in the stream. That's for alluvial. For eluvial... Uh, where to look for it, where to look for where the gold is deposited when it comes to the alluvial stuff. Look at the low hill rises and flats adjacent to gold producing areas such as old gold mines on hillsides or dry blowing sites. Prospecting uh, laterite profiles that have developed over bedrock. Uh, look at the base of hills where there's ironstone and quartz rubble. Search too on hillsides where there is a natural barrier such as a coarse vein or a dike. Follow the path down the hill from your gold find or the historical evidence and up to the hill to find more nuggets or even the primary gold source. Have a look too to see if there is a change of vegetation or grasses on the side of a hill. Check to see if there's maybe deeper ground where the material has been deposited in some sort of depression. And detect for coarse gold on the banks or edges of the salt lakes at the bottom of slopes. Now, Eluvial is moved by gravity or rock slides as the primary gold source actually erodes. It's deposited due to the change of a hill gradient, such as a depression in the hillside. The base of the hill prevents further rock movement. And there's also natural rock barriers prevent further movement as well. So they're just some of the things. That's a little thing that I I picked up on a gold course that I did with a company called Raw Gold in Denoli in Victoria. You would have heard of the name Andrew Bales. If you haven't, you would have seen the possibly if you're a, a... interested in gold or prospecting would have seen the weekend prospector that's andrew bales and uh, he has a company called raw gold did a course out of denoli a couple of weeks ago it was absolutely fantastic and there's a difference between alluvial gold and eluvial gold is a bit of insider information we'll take a break and when we come back i'll be talking to you from denoli itself so You're listening to the road less traveled podcast mm-hmm. this week we come to you from the golden triangle in victoria the golden triangle is pretty much denoli inglewood wedderburn in this particular area denoli was first surveyed in 1857 after the great rush a tent and timber township uh, over 100 1.1 kilometers long um, the township once lied the broadway uh, which is the main street where i am at the moment it's here the car's coming behind me and served the needs of up to 50,000 diggers it's a quaint little country town Tanagawa in the early 1850s an estimated 5,000 miners were working along Sandy Creek after the diggers had followed the rushes to other centres. An alluvial rush started in Corfu Reef in 1859 bringing them flooding back. The Prince of Wales shaft on the Poverty Reef had been reopened and the mine which has been largely responsible for the wealth of Tanagawa is apparently being worked again there's a lovely another little town in the golden triangle called inglewood it's a verandahed town that straddles the calder highway and it's a really good example of victorian mining and agricultural communities that grew up along the highways to wedderburn well wedderburn was once one of victoria's richest gold mining towns even up to the 1950s nuggets worth twenty thousand dollars were being discovered in local backyards the General Store and Museum is a restored building furnished and is stocked at the when was stocked as it was at the turn of the century and the old eucalyptus distillery is signposted and is certainly well worth a visit another town you can visit in this area is King Gower. In 1981, a Melbourne couple using a metal detector discovered the Hand of Faith nugget in the King Gower, Wedderburn area. They don't say exactly where it was. The nugget was later sold to a Las Vegas casino for $1 million, which was an absolute fortune in 1981. In Molligal in late 1855, around 16,000 prospectors were on the diggings of Molligal. The Welcome Stranger Nugget was discovered here on the 5th of February 1869. It's the birthplace of John Flynn, founder of the Royal Flying Doctor Service. The Welcome Stranger Monument and Discovery Walk can now be found approximately two southwest of Molligal. In Beeluba, the first settlers arrived in the district around 1840. There's several mines um, were being worked right up here until the First World War. If you head to the little Welsh town of Lancourie, the first settlers arrived from Yass in 1839, bringing with them over 17,000 head of sheep, cattle and horses. The weir was started in 1889. The Great Flood of 1909 burst the weir, devastating properties up to 40 kilometres away in distance. So a bit about Denali um, was first named in 1845 by the Scottish pioneer Archibald Campbell MacDougall, who took up a sheep run in the district. He named his run after the castle Denali in Scotland, where he was born. The great rush at Denali began in 1856, following strikes at Burnt Creek, which is Bromley, and Jones's Creek, ten kilometres north, and at the, the Old Lead, which is German Gully, which you would have heard on Australian on the TV show uh, Aussie Gold Hunters. An estimated 339 nuggets were found in the district. 126 on the Denali field itself at this time there are up to 50,000 diggers in this district and the main street known as Broadway was over 1.5 kilometers long on the 5th of February 1869 the welcome stranger nugget which is the world's largest nugget, nugget ever found was discovered at Mulligal 10 kilometers northeast of here the nugget was brought back to Denali three days later it weighed and sold on the London Chartered Bank on Broadway you can see the Denali Post Office in 1890 that was constructed. And Broadway is this aptly named roadway behind me that once flanked by a tent and Timber Township that st- and it stretched for over a half, one and a half kilometres. And along here there's many examples of fine buildings dating from this period and are still in use today, such as the bakery buildings. Both of these buildings date from the 1850s. There's an Ironmongers, um, which was started in 1856, now used as a private residence. There's Glover's Grocery Shop, built in 1858. The site of Julius Vogel's chemist shop in 1857. He later became the Prime Minister of New Zealand. Did you know that? There's the site of the old public library, which was built around 1856. The state bank now occupies this site, and old bricks from the demolished library have been used in its construction. The railway hotel, built in 1858 by Ernest Ernston, first known as the Criterion Hotel, now used as a private residence, and the London Chartered Bank circa 1862. It was at this bank that the Welcome Stranger Nugget was weighed and sold in February 1869. The town hall behind me, originally built for use as a courthouse, but in 1887 after a judge of the time complained of the acoustics, an exchange was made with the old town hall in Market Street. The Goldfields Museum behind me, it's where the Welcome Stranger Nugget was broken up on the anvil, which now sounds proudly in front of the museum. The Royal Hotel, built in 1869. The Bendigo Hotel. This hotel housed the Cobb Coast stables and accommodation buildings. Both still stand at the rear of Daly's store. The Terminus Hotel, the railway station built in 1874, um, the Shire of Bet-bet offices built in 1973, they were extended in 1988, the Anglican Church and Common School, um, the foundation stone was laid for the church in 1869 and a pipe organ installed later in 1879. The school uh, opened at St John's Hall in 1857. So where is Denali. Well, Denoli itself is located 182 kilometers northwest of Melbourne via Kind and 24 kilometers north of Maryborough. Basically, you head up from Melbourne and head on the Calder Highway and head out through uh, Maldon and then on to Denoli that way. Fantastic little place to visit and there's Plenty of accommodation as well, such as the Denoli Golden Triangle Motel. There's a few B&Bs, and there's also the Denali Caravan Park too, and there's the local hotel. So there's plenty of options. Just jump on, do a Google search, and you'll be able to, if, you, if you're into motels and B&Bs and perhaps something like a backpacker, there's plenty of options. We stayed uh, at the Dredge Hole. There's free camping at the Dredge Hole at Denoli. You can stay there, or Denoli Caravan Park with Peter and Carol McFadden. Um, They're your hosts. They invite you to step back in time and experience the hospitality of Denali where you can enjoy the tranquil lakeside setting of this beautiful caravan park. It is within walking distance from the main street and is centrally located to all the regional attractions of the Golden Triangle. We might do a little bit of a podcast on the tr- Golden Triangle of the uh, Victorian Goldfields region too. If a lot of you have uh, sent in that you want some information about uh, where to go as far as the gold- Golden Triangle is concerned in Victoria. So we might do a, a later podcast on that particular subject too. So before we wrap up this week's edition, uh, did I learn lots in, in the prospecting course? I did, absolutely. Is there still gold around Denali? and its surrounding districts, absolutely there is as well. We know that it's world famous for that 1869 discovery of the Welcome Stranger Gold Nugget, and the areas around Denoli and the location of Mulligal are a renowned destination for gold prospectors. It's filled with plenty, and I mean plenty of old diggings, there's historic sites and extensive areas of bushland, and this region continues to produce regular gold nugget discoveries to this very day. If you're looking to try your luck prospecting around Denali and Mulligal, there is plenty of information on online, um, but if you haven't already got one for, first, make sure you grab yourself a miner's right before you head out looking for gold. You can purchase one online; it's dead easy. So, where to go gold det- Put a sentence together, Nikki. Where to go gold detecting around Denali and Molagor? Well, as well as on Crown land, gold prospecting is permitted in. Uh, I'll put. A, tell you about some forests and reserves around Denali and Mulligal, you need to make sure that this list isn't really complete. There are many smaller reserves throughout the area, which um, I haven't put together, but this will make a good sort of starting point. The Wanyara Denali State Forest, there's the Mount Hooley State Forest, the Harvest Home State Forest, the Biliaba Barp State Forest, Mulligal State Forest, Mulligal Nature Conservation Reserve. There's also two um, at the Welcome Stranger Monument dis- Discovery Walk at the Mulligal Historic Area. Now, prospecting is not permitted within the direct vicinity of the Welcome Stranger Monument, just bear, bear that in mind. Longbush State Forest, McIntyre Historic Area, the Riola Hill Historic Area, the Wheeler Nature Conservation Reserve and the Cuyura State Park in designated areas only. You need to see Parks Victoria Prospecting Map for the Cuyara State Park. Can you do gold panning and sluicing around Denali and Well, it's typically quite dry. Um, Most of the creeks and the gullies are seasonal. In fact, many of them are almost uh, dry. It was dry when I was out there. Water is scarce in the area during summer, and many creeks will have minimal flow throughout winter as well, which can be fine for panning and high banking, but not great for river sluices. The creeks and rivers around Denali and where prospecting is not permitted, you need to look at the Earth Resources list of rivers and streams where you can't for gold. Many of the rivers and creeks around Denoli are off limits for prospecting with Burnt Creek, uh, Betbet Creek, Jones Creek, Winyara Creek, Loddon River and Avoca River all appearing on Earth Resources' list of rivers and streams where you can't prospect for gold. You, uh, there are some those small creeks and gullies around Denoli and Moligo which are open for gold prospecting including the seasonal Mulligal Creek. Just be sure to double-check that the creek or river's name does not appear on that list before heading out. There's plenty of old mining dams throughout the bush which can be uh, utilised for gold panning and high banking as well and they're pretty easily spotted on the Google Maps satellite view. These dams too will generally hold water further into summer than the small sort of seasonal gullies throughout the forest. There's gold shops like Coil Tech Gold Centre uh, in Maryborough, gold teching with Stinky Pete prospecting tours. Chicks with Picks Australia's have fantastic clothing, gear and accessories for people with gold fever. Um, maps for the area, check out um, the Denali and Inglewood State Forest Cuyara State Park um, maps for Victoria Prospecting maps and the historical gold maps of the Victorian goldfields. That's all I'm going to tell you, because I'm going to get out there now and uh, get back on the detective before I head back home. I hope you've enjoyed a quick trip to Denali, a little bit about gold. I hope it's uh, whet your appetite to get out there and explore Australia, even if it's with a detector, or a gold pan, or a sluice or a high banker. Make sure you check where you can do it legally so you don't get in strife. This has been the Road Less Travelled podcast. My name is Nicky Shea, and I look forward to seeing you somewhere on the Road Less Travelled. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. This has been The Road Less Travelled, a podcast about travelling and camping on the road. Written and hosted by me, Nikki Shea, produced by Fat Cat Media. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we'd love you to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Even better, please leave a review. Any comments or questions, please email fatcat at iinet.net.au. And to be notified on the new episodes, make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed. We'll be back with a new episode next week.